Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, we are talking with registered nurses Candy Kinser and Abby Bell, along with caregiver Aaron Nolte. They're with uh, Yarrow Hospice in American Fork. And we're going to talk a bit about today about how, as a a medical provider, you deal with uh, patients in this world of uh, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. And uh, so I want to start off... uh, Amy put this together, so I'm going to ask Amy to kind of uh, launch us off into our discussion and kind of find out how these ladies are able to uh, do their jobs uh, in this new environment. Yeah, I think I actually worked with um, uh, all of these women on some stories, and one of the things that struck me was how their jobs have changed um, and have become more complicated and, and in some ways a little bit more sad. And so I just wanted to have them on the show and um, just talk about what it's like caring for people, um, you know, many of whom are end of life care. So I think the first place to start would be if, um, Candy, do you want to start? And then Abby, you go second. And then Aaron, you can go after that. Um, and just tell us, first of all, exactly how you got into the, who, a little bit about yourself and how you got into hospice work. And, um, and then we'll go from there. Candy, you sure. want to start? Yeah. Amy, Jason. So I've been in healthcare forever. I started actually when I was 16 as a candy striper. And then I worked at Children's Hospital in Oklahoma City for a year. And then I went to the intensive care unit and worked there. But I eventually became frustrated with some of the things I saw in intensive care. However, when I learned about hospice and started following a hospice nurse, I was so impressed with the quality of life of these patients as they were cared for wherever they were living, whether it was in a home or an assisted living or a skilled nursing facility. And I became a hospice nurse. Okay, Abby? Yeah, so I've been a nurse for about eight years and I started at the hospital. And the hospital actually sent me to a palliative care conference. And that is where I met Candy. She was speaking at the conference And it just really spoke to me the way that they talked about what what they do in hospice and that it was just such a connecting experience with other with other humans and what you got to be a part of. And so then I started uh, with another company that I worked PRN for them and I would go back and forth from the hospital to hospice. And it just got to be too much because I I found that I didn't get to really be with patients the way that I wanted to at the hospital. 
And so then I, I came over completely to hospice and uh, we purchased our own company in January. So Candy, I, I would start with you next then. Um, so uh, as I was asking, is, is it a, a sad job knowing, you know, how, how it is that uh, you're helping your patients and, and uh, how does it affect you? Well, Jason, I can tell you that one of the things I love about hospice is that it opens doors. Um, we sometimes live in our own homes, we watch our own TVs, and we don't intersect as much as we used to in humanity. But hospice opens up doors and allows us into the homes of our neighbors and, and those in the community, and it brings us together. But with this COVID crisis, many, many doors have shut, especially for our patients. And I think Abby can probably elaborate a little bit about that because she's been a case manager recently going into those facilities where these patients reside. And, but before I turn over to Abby, let me tell you about one of our patients. He went to the hospital. He was in a facility with his wife. He went to the hospital because he was in a crisis and she, as she turned the corner to walk with him I mean, to walk with the, those who were taking him into the intensive care unit, they stopped her and they said, oh, no, you're not going in there. So this husband and wife who had been married for 60 years and adored each other and all he wanted was her to be with him. They were separated for three days while he lay in intensive care. But we were able to bring him home and we were able then to to unite them again. And they had a final last few days together. That was very meaningful. But as she told us the story of having to turn and leave him go, it she tears filled her eyes. It was very, it just felt so wrong. So, uh, Abby? Yeah, so I, I love working in hospice and although it it might appear sad to the outsider i really enjoy i think it's an honor and a privilege to be a part of people's lives um, as they're transitioning to wherever they believe they, they're going or not going next and that we get to be a part of that road it's not just clinical it's not just nursing it's psychosocial it's education it's comfort um, it's hearing a lot of, of life stories and processing, and it, it's just an absolutely beautiful experience that I feel, I feel honored every day that I get to be a part of, and that I, you know, that, that's my career. So that's, that's how I feel about hospice in general. You know, I, uh, I think what you guys do is, is such, um, I don't know, it's, it's a privilege for the people to have someone like you to, to help them, uh, bring them comfort and provide them uh, the, the care that they need uh, in their in their time of, uh, you know, healthcare challenges. It's it's I, I, I commend you all for doing that. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about how COVID has uh, impacted the way you're able to do your jobs. You're listening to Voices of Reason. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
are back with the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, we're speaking with uh, healthcare providers. They are uh, registered nurses Candy Kinser and uh, Abby Bell, along with caregiver Aaron Nolte. They work at uh, Yarrow Hospice in American Fork. And in, in the, kind of the first segment, we dealt a little bit with uh, just kind of how they got into this career and, and the kind of work they do. And now uh, Amy's going to kind of take it away and get into a little more about uh, this uh, the whole COVID situation. Yeah, I think it's important to note that the reason the job has become more complex, I think, and probably more vital is that um, with the precautions uh, that the government has taken um, and care centers and hospitals have taken to try to prevent the spread of COVID-19, um, they've reduced the number of people who can and, and almost eliminated the number of people who can come into hospitals and who can visit uh, people in care centers. So, for example, I have an aunt who's in a care center. She could have no visitors. Um, and, and that's where I think um, hospice has you are, are allowed to go in and, and continue caring for patients that you've been working with. Um, and I'm not sure about the hospital situation, but I guess I I'd ask uh, Abby first. How has this impacted your relationship with your patients and what have you had to do to try to maintain those connections? Yeah, so it's it's drastically even changed the face of hospice because um, ideally we offer an entire team to a patient and their family, a social worker, a chaplain, volunteers, massage therapy, music therapy. Um, so there's so many services that have been cut, especially for patients that don't have family support or don't have families calling and those types of things. And so for the for the nurse and for the, the caregiver and the aide, we, we have to take on a lot more, which we're happy to do. But the, the heavy part of it is, is I, I think that you just see it, it's not quite enough. It's, as much as you can do for someone, you know, they want their son in there. They want to see their daughter. They want to see their their grandchild and you want to see their face light up when that happens. And so we're doing our best to, you know, get iPads into facilities and to facilitate conversation. And it's a little hard for the older folk where, you know, they can't hear as well. They don't really understand technology. And so I think it, you know, they have to sit upright in a, in a position that might be uncomfortable for a while. And so we're doing the best that we can, but they won't let family come in or out of the facility. And so, you know, sometimes we're taking eyeglasses around the corner and, and seeing there's a great eye company that just, I called them. I said, hey, I have a hospice patient. Her glasses are bent up. They're dirty. They're hurting her face. And they were so kind. They they cleaned them up, they reshaped them, they put new nose pads on, gave her, you know, a bunch of free items, and, and that meant everything to her. You know, we've given haircuts, we've we've done all sorts of things that I'm <laughs> certainly not qualified to do, and I'm not sure that he loved his haircut, but he was happy it was shorter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Candy, what are you seeing um, with your patients? What's become more difficult or more challenging? Well, one of the things is the subsequent fallout after a patient dies. I introduced you a few minutes ago to a husband and a wife who were separated when he went into the emergency room and then into ICU and she couldn't be with him. When he came home, that was wonderful. And one of the reasons they decided to bring them, bring him home was so that he could have some last minute time with his family, with his grandchildren. But um, when he did pass away, she was faced with this. She tearfully told me, Candy, 
when I go back to the facility where we were living, which I need to do, all my things are back there. They told me that I will have to stay in my room for 14 days. I can't see any of my children. She had a son that had come in from out of state to spend time with her during this time. He wouldn't be allowed to be with her. She said, I will have to grieve all by myself without any support from my family around me. She said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle that. This is just so unfair. Oh, you're just breaking my heart. Candy. I am telling you, that is just horrible. <laughs> I mean, and, and I guess there isn't, there isn't really a good solution because, I mean, some of the deaths, uh, a good portion of the deaths that have been reported are happening in, in care centers because these people are already vulnerable. They are very vulnerable. And so, I mean, Aaron, what are you seeing amongst your patients that's, um, you know, good and bad from this, uh, the isolation? Well, um, I see uh, the, the most troubling thing, I think, would be the cognitive decline, just the lack of stimulus, the lack of interaction. It really affects our patients. You know, they, they need that in their lives. So I've been trying to kind of fill in those cracks, take extra time, you know, talk to them, engage with them. Like Abby mentioned, set them up on FaceTime on their iPads, which, you know, they're getting more techie all the time, <laughs> our patients. But, um, you know, it's just, it's a heavy weight on me, but I am so happy and honored and blessed to be doing it. And I feel, I feel like we have just this great responsibility to serve them as best as we can in these troubling times because we are the ones that are still allowed in the facilities and the only ones. So it's, it's huge. Erin, you mind if I ask you if, uh, does it feel burdensome knowing that you have that responsibility? No, I feel, honestly, I feel honored. I really do. I feel almost like, not like a superhero, but like, just having the ability to to help them in this way when they have n no other resources except for our technology i mean i feel really that I, there's not another word for it except for honored i and, guess uh, i was going to yeah. ask the same question to uh to candy uh, do you feel like it's kind of a heavy burden to have or do you feel like uh aaron does very much like Erin, and I'm so honored and privileged to work with her. You know, I've worked in um, many different settings. I've worked in clinics, I've worked in facilities, I've worked in hospital settings. I've never worked with more awesome and fun teams to be with than the hospice teams. They're, it's a calling. I mean, we really feel like it's a, it's a sacred calling and that we're standing on sacred ground when we're able to go in and be with these very special people. And so getting to work with one another, that's a catharsis for us. That is, um, that's very healing for us. And to be able to give service, is a, it's a great joy. Abby, what, are you, what were your thoughts on the same thing? Well, you could imagine that they're the same. Being on a hospice team um, is amazing. It's, it's the best work that I've ever done. And, and a lot of people think we're crazy. You know, they say it's what you do and you say, oh, hospice. I say, oh, wow, is that hard? And it's, it's interesting the reactions that you get, but it's not hard to the people that are on hospice. It does get heavy at times and we cry and we feel and 
we become so connected to our patients that it can be heavy in that way because we're losing friends that, that we develop these relationships with. But all in all, you know, it's, it's a, it is, it's a special a calling or part of our path or journey or however you want to look at that. Well, it's great that uh, they have people like you in their lives to uh, to give them that kind of comfort. We'll, we'll continue our discussion about uh, hospice in this day of uh, coronavirus and this COVID outbreak and how uh, healthcare providers uh, are trying to improve the lives of those uh, inflicted with this uh, infection. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. I'm Jason Lee, along with my broadcast partner, Amy Donaldson. And uh, today we're talking to registered nurses Candy Kenser and Abby Bell, along with caregiver Aaron Knowlton. They work at uh, Yarrow Hospice in American Fork, Utah. And uh, we wanted to kind of uh, get a sense of, you know, kind of where where your, I mean, how this situation has changed your lives and, and kind of the, the things that are important to you. And uh, Amy, I'll let you kind of kick this off again. I think you know. I think if we're going to understand the change, we got to know like what's a normal day for you, pre COVID nineteen. What would a normal day be like for you, Abby? And then Candy, you can follow up. Yeah. So a normal day would just be that I I'd go out and about, and I would go into facilities and out of facilities, and I'd be able to call you know our social worker or chaplain or massage therapist and. I'd be able to much better handle the needs of my patients and call on just the many that make a hospice team. And so now um, the change in hospice is that I'm not able to do as much for a patient. Um, we're, we're getting creative in what they do need if they can't get to a doctor's appointment. Uh, we're trying to Skype with the doctor, coordinate with families, decide you know, we have a patient right now decide, well, does she really need to get the shot in her eye tomorrow? She does need to because it's helping what site she has left. But if she decides to go to that appointment, she's going to have to be quarantined for 14 days after she comes back. And so I think for me, um, with COVID, um, now owning a business as well, there's a lot of multitasking. I'm doing homeschool and my husband and I are, are taking shifts and um, yeah, he'll go out and I'll come back and, and on call at night. And so it's just, it kind of seems like it never ends sometimes in hospice and just with everything that we're doing and having our kids at home and teaching and all the things there's, um, I don't think I've ever been busier for me, but just for my lens right now. So I would just say that before this COVID stuff started happening, um, it was just like looking back on how things used to be, it was a lot more breezy. I was a lot more free to, you know, talk to different staff at, in my nursing facilities that I frequent um, and, you know, take my patients out into the dining area and set them up and visit with other residents at these said facilities. And now it's like the, the facilities, they want you to come in directly with your mask and gloves and things and and go directly to the patient's room and pretty much nowhere else. So yes, we're still being allowed in and to to do what we need to do for our patients, but it's very, you know, they stringent. And just along with what Abby mentioned, doing the whole homeschool 
stuff for our kids, you know, it adds an element of stress, no doubt. But on the same token, I just feel, again, so honored to be able to be there for my patients during this time and to still be able to be in the facilities because that's that's something that's really worrisome. If, if they stop allowing hospice in, that that would be really a bad thing. Candy, what's that like for you personally? It breaks my heart because I realize that, you know, you can give a patient food, you can give them medication, you can give them drugs, but just as important is the voices of their loved ones. They love to hear the voices of their loved ones and the touch when, when a loved one comes in and holds their hand, it's, it's everything to them. There are so dying people are so cool. They know what's important in life and to not be able to give them that in the way that I have in the past, it's a huge loss. I mean, you just hit on something. The reason hospice is, a, I've been through it, both a hospital death and a hospice death. The reason for me hospice was so much better is a we we were there we had communication we had information um but now if you're not able to have all of those elements like how do you is it even possible to to give the kind of comfort and and i guess exit or transition that you that you're that you're used to doing in hospice no it's it's not we do the best we can um, and we try to connect people, whether it's through a window or whether it's through Skype or um, Hangouts. I mean, we try to do the best we can. But the reality is that bonding is a very powerful human experience. And all of nature does everything possible to force us during times of bonding, which would be birth and death, to push aside the world and just focus on each other as um, intimate partners in this in this experience and, and to not be able to see the bonding that takes place between family, between parents and grandparents and children and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives at the bedside when someone passes, it's, it's a huge loss. Listen, I, I know how hard your job is, but I also, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I speak for so many people when people like yourselves, they make our lives better and you make our lives better. So we're, we're very appreciative of the work you do, uh, even though it is it is very challenging and we just appreciate that you do it so deftly. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion. You're listening to Voices of Reason. Project's Voices of Reason. I am Jason Lee, along with Amy Donaldson. Today, we're talking about hospice care, and uh, in this challenging time of COVID, we're speaking with registered nurses Candy Kenser and Abby Bell, along with caregiver Aaron Nolte. Uh, they're with Yarrow Hospice in American Fork. And, uh, you know, uh, Candy, you were kind of explaining, you know, uh, kind of what it is you do and, and, and how you're able to do it. And I was hoping you can kind of give us a little insight as to, uh, you know, how you feel like this is going, you know, going forward, what, what life is going to look like for people? Well, I, um, I think there are things that we can do as families 
and as caregivers and as intelligent healthcare professionals to enable some of the bonding that is so important to still take place during this COVID crisis. In other words, um, while a patient is while a patient is separated from their family, I mean, this is a generation that understood letters and they understood photographs. So sit down and write grandma or grandpa a letter and tell them how much you love them and send them a picture of you. They would love that. Do, do allow the hospice to do the Skyping with you so that your loved one can see that. And if they, if they enjoyed music, send them some age appropriate music, something from back in the 40s or 30s or even 50s or even the 20s that they can they can listen to maybe some spiritual music and if if they and if if the family's willing to get the kids together and sing and create create some music that you can send to them so they can hear their own loved ones these would be things that would be so meaningful and then as caregivers i've known of facilities that have made very carefully but have made exceptions and allowed a son or a daughter to come in during that final time so that they can have that closure. Otherwise, we've just ripped apart hearts and not given them any closure. I think that's one of the things that's most complicated about this time is kind of balancing um, safety and the spread of this virus with um, like some of the most important moments in our lives, you know, weddings, births, um, and death. Um, do you, if you're in charge and any of you can answer this, I, I know, I know Aaron, if you want to go first, um, if you're in charge, you know, what kinds of changes or accommodations would you make or, or are they doing, is everybody kind of doing the best they can under the circumstances? I think that everyone really is for the most part. Um, but I think really what we need to tap into, like Candy was saying, you know, make videos or, or sing songs for your loved ones, uh, tapping into that techno te technology, you know, we have it at our disposal. It wasn't always there. It's the one thing that we have to really stay connected. You know, I, I think that just utilizing that as much as possible during this time is really is really key. Uh, would like to see is facilities allowing patients who are able to get outside. Fresh air is so helpful and sunshine is so helpful in, in this time of virus that if they can just get outside and see the blue sky and see the sunshine and open up their blinds a little bit, there's no danger in a patient being able to go outside as long as there's not a connection with someone who might infect them. And, and I've seen facilities make these exceptions and it's been a, a huge blessing to the residents in those facilities. Abby, what were your thoughts? Um, so my thought would be artwork. I, I think that I have a friend that's been, their children have been dropping off artwork to facilities and I think older folks really love to see um, colorings and, and drawings from little kids. It really brightens their day. And just doing those little things that encourage one another. There's a, there's a blown up dinosaur on the corner of my street last night that was holding a big sign 
that said, we can do this. Mm -hmm. And I think that was so powerful for my kids to see. People were honking as they went by and just little words of encouragement and, and love that we love each other and we're doing this together. I do think there's something to be said for the um, uh, the music and the singing, but I, I also wonder about the touch. Is there anything, I mean, does that, do you feel like that there's any, other than making the exceptions at the end of life that, uh, Candy, do you think there's any, I mean, I miss hugs. I don't know. And I'm not dying. So I just wonder if there's any thing that can be done about just the, the value of a hug or a hand, you know, a, holding your hand. Even eye contact. Mm -hmm. When we make direct eye contact, if you're a caregiver, if you're a nurse, if you're an aide, if you're a physician, when you, when you see that patient, take a minute and give them that direct eye contact. It only takes a minute and it, it affirms their worth. It affirms their humanity, but touch is so important. And, um, I think touch and then washing hands, washing hands and then touch. And, and I would say I like to give my patients elbows before we leave because I say, you know, <laughs> I would hug you if I can. I, I can't. I don't want to expose you to anything, but give me an elbow. And it, and it makes them smile and they know that you care and that you want to touch them. Right. I, I was going to ask you about that. You know, since we've gotten to this point, you know, we, we all know why we're doing it, but there, there's some part of me that wonders, do people get offended when they're, maybe when they can't, uh, they're unable to make that kind of human connection that you guys talk about? With, yeah, with, with I think it- Touching another human being, I mean. Uh, yeah, I think the barriers have been, I nobody said it's offensive, but you can feel it in their energy. Uh, also, a lot of people are so hard of hearing that I have to stand back and pull my mask mask down because they also need to be reading my mouth as I speak and then we have gloves on and and so I do think it can seem a little a little sterile and you do have to go the extra mile to make sure that they know that you're genuine and that you're there because you care and to spend extra time in the ways that you can connect because it does seem really really sterile and isolating and cold in some aspects. Yes, and that's exactly why I left the ICU, or one of the reasons. I mean, there we had high bed rails on all the beds. The beds were all raised. We had all these monitors and all these lines going into our patient. So many things separating the family from their loved one. And in hospice, we were able to, we were able to pull all down those barriers, but now barriers are up. So anything we can do to connect human to human is going to be wonderful. Let me, Aaron, I want to give you the last word in the last minute. Uh, can you kind of expound on what but, you're saying? But about also, to, can we, can yeah. I jump in Jason and just say, sure. Aaron, you can have the last word and expound on what they're saying, but also how do people like, at what point do you get hospice involved? I feel like we probably left that out of this oh, conversation. Yeah. Well, I think just really being present for my patients, listening, you know, being that ear that, because it's, it's emotional for them. It's, it's different. And they have so many concerns about what is going on outside. You know, um, one of my patients, he even lost track of which direction was which, because he's, you know, they've been in their room for five weeks now. So I think just listening to them, you know, and like uh, Candy was saying, 
with the facilities that allow it, taking them out in the sunshine, taking them on walks. I have one patient that has just thrived with that. He loves the walks. So, and so at what point or how do people, what point in the process do people get involved with hospice and how do they do that? Well, Amy, actually, I think the earlier hospice comes in, the better. If the doctor feels the patient is in a precarious situation and he um, feels that hospice would be a benefit, a lot of times physicians don't even bring up the subject because it's a long conversation and they're very limited in how much time they can spend with the patient. And so having us come in and explain the program, it's wonderful. I've known patients to be on hospice, then go off because they did better, then come back on. There's no end to it if a patient qualifies and can use it. So um, it, it just brings in so many more services. And I want to thank you and Jason for opening the window to this topic. And that's one last thing I'd like to say. Open windows. If your loved one is in a facility and you're a caregiver, you're a nurse or you're an aide, open up that window now that the warmer weather's here and let a loved one come and stand outside the window and they can hear their actual voice without a big barrier between them. Candy Kinsler, uh, Abby Bell, Erin Nolte, I want to say thank you for being with us and thank you for providing humanity to people in critical times in their lives. And we all are better because of people like you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Join us for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at voramed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. And we love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of The Loudmouth Project.